Welcome to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. Governor Spencer Cox signs a Utah anti-DEI bill prohibiting diversity efforts he wants championed. A Utah transgender bathroom ban goes into effect after Governor Cox quickly signs the bill. And a judge said a Salt Lake City man could go to rehab after jail. Why did no one take him there before he died? Joining me today are Salt Lake Tribune reporter Courtney Tanner. Courtney, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tom. Happy to be here. Good morning. Uh, State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern is with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Tom. Thank you. Uh, Reporter Peyton Harkins is with us. Thank you. Hey, Tom. Thanks. Thanks for being with us. And news columnist Robert Gerke. Thank you, Robert. Hey, good morning. Good to be here. Good morning. Uh, Let's start with uh, Courtney Tanner. Uh, You've been reporting on the uh, DEI as it's uh, moved uh, through the legislature. Uh, So I guess the latest news uh, that has passed Senate House, Governor Cox has signed this uh, bill. Uh, What uh, what what's in the bill? Briefly, Courtney, what what will this do? Right. It's it's pretty wide ranging, to be honest. But the, the biggest thing is that for all of public education, so both higher education and K through 12 and then also government offices, it basically you have to rehaul your diversity offices. Um, You can't use the words diversity, equity, and inclusion in those office names, and you have to open up any kind of race or gender-based office to anyone that would be interested. So an example of that would be like if you have a Black cultural center, then white students would need to be able to come and, and get resources there. So that's kind of the biggest thrust of the bill. So you could you still still could have Black or Hispanic in the name, but you'd have to be open to all all, all exactly. students. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Governor Cox points out, and this is uh, these these kinds of bills have been uh, passing in red states across the the nation. Uh, he points out some uh, of those states are just banning DEI altogether. Um, Governor Cox sees as a positive that instead of banning these offices, it, it, they just have to be open to all students. Yeah, when he signed it this week, he released a statement along with that and said that he finds this to be a more balanced approach, um, that, you know, these offices aren't being fully defunded like they are in some states. Um, but it is worth pointing out that, that Utah's bill, um, now law, is is more far-reaching than a lot of states. A lot of states have just focused on higher education, and, and Utah's doing K-12 higher education and government. So, yeah, he sees it as a balanced approach, but it is a more far-reaching bill than other states. Uh, will are there such programs, K through twelve? Will this have an effect, as much of an effect, I guess, as as higher education? Yeah, and that's something we'll dig into a little bit more too. Um, but yeah, there are definitely these programs in in K through twelve um, to support you know younger students who who might be at a disadvantage coming in. Um, you know, a lot of students that come into you know the states public education are, you know, refugees or, or don't have English as a first language. And, and there's a lot of programs that are meant to support those students and their families. Uh, you point out your story, Courtney, that um, uh, Governor Cox, uh, early in his uh, term of office, January 2021, he signed on to the Utah Compact on Racial Equality, Diversity and Inclusion. Um, what What is that? Yeah, it's... Um, this agreement where you sign on and you basically pledge to to call out discrimination and to work towards eradicating it. Now, would that be allowed under the new law? It's a good question. Um, 
the name of it, you know, includes the the same terms that are banned, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, the new law also um, doesn't allow for schools or government offices to have what um, Governor Cox has been calling diversity statements that um, employees would have to sign. And, you know, Governor Cox signed this and also encouraged his staff to sign it when, when he started as governor. And so it does seem like that would not be allowed. Uh, this, when does this go into effect, the law? It starts in July. So a lot of colleges have been putting out statements saying, you know, they're going to start analyzing what they will need to do under the bill. And, uh, yeah, they've got a couple months to, to kind of figure that out. Uh, what are Democrats saying upon the passage of this bill? Yeah, Democrats have been opposed from the start. So it is worth pointing out that when it passed both the House and the Senate, it was with unanimous approval from Republican lawmakers and unanimous disapproval from all of the Democratic state lawmakers. Um, you know, I think they're worried about how it's going to affect students of color, um, you know, women, first generation college students. DEI programs are really um, more expansive than a lot of people think. You know, they, they affect... Um, you know, students with disabilities. I mean, there's just, there's so many facets of, of what those programs touch. And so I think that, you know, Democrats are worried about erasing those students and, and those students feeling like they no longer have a place on campus. Uh, Courtney Town, you have another story out. Uh, the headline, Governor Cox said he didn't see evidence DEI programs work. Here's the data Utah colleges say they've given him. You go college by college. Um, and, and it brings up some questions. You probably don't have all the answers, although I'll ask you, <laughs> but, um, uh, so for example, Utah Valley university, uh, according from your story, they've focused their DEI efforts or they say they've focused their DEI efforts on a few selected group of students more likely to drop out of college. Um, and then along with, um, I guess a couple of other colleges have focused on first time college students, I, I guess, regardless of race, is that okay under this new law? Yeah, and I think a lot of that kind of still remains to be seen. Um, I do think probably the first generation college students is fine. That's what the lawmakers that were kind of championing this bill wanted to focus on um, is more populations rather than being like race or gender based um, designations, more general populations. Um, but yeah, these these DEI efforts, it was interesting to look at every school kind of approaches DEI differently. And so you know, you can't really compare holistically across the eight public uh, universities and colleges, but it was interesting to see, you know, what each one had had kind of picked as as their focus for for where they were kind of spending their money and, and their attention. Um, but yeah, going forward, a lot of that work. So like with with Utah Valley University, they focused a lot on Latino students and Pacific Islander students, and those are you know race based categories, and they wouldn't really be able to focus their efforts in that kind of targeted way going forward. Salt Lake Community College, very interesting uh, case here. They they wanted their school, the, the makeup of the student body, to look like Salt Lake County, right? And right. and uh, they especially wanted to increase uh, Latino student population, and they've been very successful. It's up to about what twenty one percent demographic in Salt Lake County is about about twenty percent. Um, I'm guessing targeting Latino students would not be allowed under the new bill. Yeah, it appears that way. Um, Salt Lake Community College, you're right, is a really interesting case study in this. It's the college in the state that now has the highest Latino percentage and, and by quite a wide margin. The next closest school is Utah Tech University in southern Utah, which has 13 percent Latino students. Um, 
And so I know Salt Lake Community College has been working really hard to get this special designation as, you know, a Hispanic serving institution, which is 25%. So it's really close to that. Um, but it, yeah, it kind of remains to be seen if, if now they're going to be able to reach that or if they're going to be able to keep focusing on this underserved population or not under the new bill. It, it doesn't appear like they will be able to. A laws, I guess, will have to shake out, um, and there might be some unintended consequences. Utah Tech University, it's interesting reading from your story, their efforts, they say, have been to support students from rural communities. I assume that would probably be okay under the new law. Yeah, since it's not a, a race or a gender-based designation, I, I think that would be able to go forward. And And yeah, I think that shows, though you know, how broadly the DEI has been interpreted um, and, and how different schools approach it differently. So it's it's interesting because, you know, the legislature has seen it in, in one way, but schools have seen it in, as you can read through the story, eight different ways. There are eight different schools and each of those schools has, has interpreted it in a different way. Uh, Utah State University, they tout their Aggies First Scholar Program, also Utah State Promise Scholarships, you know, first time uh, college students. They also say they've been focusing on supporting students of color, LGBTQ students. Uh, those two categories probably in trouble there. What about students with disabilities and international students? The The lawmakers who sponsored the bill said that students with disabilities should not be impacted by the measure. Um, international students could go either way. It's unclear on that. Um, I, I would assume that that is fine. But I think, again, this shows kind of the fuzziness of the measure, right? Like it's it's not 100% clear. And, and these schools have, have put out statements saying, you know, we need to we need to analyze this. We need to figure out what it's touching or not touching or, or what's it affected. I want to talk about another fact. This was an earlier story, Courtney, um, how this bill may affect University of Utah and uh, their agreement with the Ute tribe. Uh, it, it, tell me about, first of all, this, this agreement. I, uh, this was several years ago, right? Uh, University of Utah reached out to the Ute tribe. They came up with an agreement uh, so that they could keep using the, um, the Ute name. What, uh, what does the Ute tribe get? Yeah, this is a, a really long-standing agreement. I, I think it was signed first in 1952, if I'm remembering right. So, you know, we're going on... 52 years, if I could do fast math, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, this, this agreement that's been in place for, for a really long time between the university and the tribe. Um, the university, like you said, gets to use, you know, the tribe's name and, and some of its imagery, particularly around sports. And in exchange for that, the university is supposed to support the tribe's students, um, both before they come to college and during college. So, the university, you know, offers support for K through 12 students with the tribe, you know, reaching out to the districts there and, and providing funding and then also provide scholarships for when you students actually enroll at the University of Utah. Uh, so for the story, you talked with the Senate sponsor of the this DEI bill. I, I think he he was acknowledging, yeah, that could be a problem. And he, he wanted to put a fix in. Did, did, did a fix get put in the bill, final version? Yes, it's fuzzy again. I'm sorry. That's the answer for everything <laughs> with this bill. But um, he put in a measure that protects this MOU, this memorandum of understanding between the tribe and the university through 2024. So through this year. But 
the memorandum expires in 2025. Um, so he basically acknowledged that, you know, they'll have to see whether or not the memorandum is affected by the language of the bill or not when they go to renew it next year. Uh, you quote Forrest Kutch, uh, prominent uh, member of the Ute tribe, as uh, he says he's disgusted, <laughs> turning back the clock to the 19th century, um, because he, he, he doesn't... He doesn't see, see this as a positive in any way, shape, or form. No, I, he feels that, you know, that, that lawmakers are stepping where they shouldn't be, essentially, in, in a shortened version of it. Um, you know, that he says the tribe and, and other tribes across the state have worked really hard to, to build relationships. You know, they're sovereign nations, so they operate independently, but they've worked really hard to build relationships like this memorandum that the Ute tribe has with the University of Utah. And he feels like lawmakers are, are stepping on that, that they're, you know, harming that relationship that has, you know, been a lot of hard work to build. Uh, so so finally, Courtney, um, well, let me just before I ask the final question here, um, have you been and I'm sure you'll continue reporting on this, the the effects of this as it rolls out. Right. Um, but I know at, at universities of. Uh, there, you know, a lot of questions, a lot of angst, um, you know, how, the, how is this going to affect this program or that program? Um, are, are you hearing that? Yeah, I think you you captured it perfectly. Angst is, is kind of the perfect word for it. There is a lot of, of stress um, about what is happening, how it's going to impact things. I think some universities are saying, you know, this will just affect our main equity offices. We'll rename them. We'll reform them you know, it'll be okay. They're trying to reassure students. But I think, you know, a lot are, are trying to figure it out. The University of Utah put out a statement yesterday saying, we need to analyze this. We don't know what it's going to take. And, and it'll take us a little bit of time to, to figure that out. Um, so I think that there will be a lot of impact from this and, and we'll keep following up on that. I mean, we focused a lot on higher education, but yeah, there's K through 12 schools that are impacted. There's government offices that are impacted. Um, uh, in the story about Governor Cox, we mentioned, you know, that he is a senior advisor for equity. And I asked his office what's going to happen with that position now under the bill. And even they said, we don't know. So I think there's still a lot to be figured out with this. Uh, so finally, I just want to have you give me a minute on the, the latest story published this morning. Here's the headline. Utah's governor posted about Black History Month days after signing anti-DEI bill. The backlash was swift. <laughs> he he tweeted out or he X'd out or his office did. What happened? Yeah, uh, Governor Cox tweeted in celebration of Black History Month and uh, just got flooded by by backlash. Um, you know, of people essentially saying that it was um, that he was being a hypocrite by posting this two days after signing the anti DEI bill that a lot of people see is kind of an anti black bill um, that that would harm black students. Um, so they kind of felt that his post celebrating Black History Month was at odds with his actions. Mm. Well, we'll see. I'm sure you'll be reporting on this. Courtney Tanner, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Um, Robert Gerke, what do you think about the, the, this, this bill? It's now, now headed toward law July 1st, I guess, going to effect now. Yeah, I mean, I think Courtney's really highlighted the, the impacts. I, I, the, the thing that puzzles me about it is if we talk about, you know, who it's going to be hurt it's like we should also look at who it's helping and really the people who are going to benefit from this bill are sort of white men I, and i guess we've had a pretty tough go of it over the years but 
I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily worth knocking down a bunch of programs to help people who have had disadvantages that we did not have uh, in order to, you know, boost up the most privileged group of people in the state. And so, you know, it's it is hypocritical that Spencer Cox is, you know, did this whole DEI dog and pony show at the beginning of his administration and now is, you know, dismissing it all as evil wokeism. Um, and, you know, the, the thing about him tweeting about Black History Month, it's, you know, now it's just month, I guess, in, in Utah. Uh, it's 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 really been difficult to see. And, and I think the most unfortunate part of it, in my mind, is the impact it's going to have on the K-12 level. Because you've got these kids who are coming up who, who maybe need a little bit of extra help focused on you know, their their situation at home, their national origin, their language, dis, you know, disadvantages, things like that. And and it's going to make it harder for them to do it. Maybe they can find ways around it. Maybe they can still find ways to provide those services, but it's going to make it more difficult. And and to, to what end? I mean, it's really a political stunt. Uh, it's a political stunt to cater to the Trump right wing and this anti-woke, you know, movement that is sweeping the nation. We're not seeing any real detriments of these programs over the years. And in fact, they've actually benefited a bunch of people. But now, you know, because we're because it's an election year, we're going to get rid of those. And it, and I think it's an unfortunate direction for the state to go. And I think it's going to have consequences for us down the road. We'll head toward a break now. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking with uh, State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern. Here's the headline. A Utah transgender bathroom ban goes into effect after Governor Cox quickly, quickly signs the bill. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. We'll have more following this break. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams, and we turn next to Salt Lake Tribune State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, doing a lot of coverage there at the legislature. We want to talk about uh, the second of these, uh, quote-unquote, I don't think we have to put quotes around it, uh, controversial bills. Uh, the legislature said that they would front-load these. They have. They've passed quite quickly. Uh, you've been following the transgender bathroom uh, ban. Uh, tell us what this bill now will do. So, the key part of the bill is that it changes the legal definitions of female and male in the state to essentially align categories, Utahns, by the reproductive organs they were born with. Um, by doing that, uh, it then limits um, the, who can go into which changing rooms, which locker rooms, showers, and criminalizes people who don't meet the legal definition of the sex that aligns with those spaces. Um, it also it changed the legal definition of women's restroom and men's restroom to say that those spaces are only meant for people whose uh, the, who meet the legal definition of sex that align with those spaces. Um, there aren't criminal penalties there, but there are criminal penalties for um, loitering there, uh, which you know, in the in the bill, the they assign some somewhat loose definition to loitering. Um, so it really raises questions about whether um, it criminalizes transgender people for being in any of these spaces. Hmm. 
I want to switch over to your uh, your story. You had an explainer on this, how Utah's new transgender bathroom ban will be enforced and answers to your questions. Uh, I'll just go down through this. When will these restrictions begin? When does this go into, in, into effect? So these are in effect already. When Governor Cox signed them, they automatically went into effect. Um, so, you know, technically we could start seeing people call call the police on um folks who are using the restroom that uh you know if they don't meet that legal legal definition of sex or if people think they think they don't meet that legal definition of sex um a lot of people through the debate process of this bill pointed out that you'll likely see people who um were assigned female at birth uh continue to identify as female but maybe are um could be seen as perceived as more masculine than some other woman. Um, you may see them have the cops called on them. Um, so, so it could have some pretty pretty wide impacts. Uh, yeah, maybe say a little bit more about enforcement. Um, I guess being in the wrong bathroom or changing area may or may not uh, get you in trouble. But I guess if you linger, if you loiter. Or if you misbehave, is is that a fair characterization? Yeah. So they, you know, lawmakers have said that it, it is a crime in general. Just it, when you're in, um, mm. say, to go to go into a locker room, shower, or dressing room, um, if you don't align with the legal definition of, of sex for there. But the but if you say commit um, crimes, other crimes that are already on the books, like uh, voyeurism or lewdness in that space, and you happen to be a person who does not align with those, um, with the legal definitions of sex, then those penalties will be enhanced. But uh, it also, you know, just it, it becomes criminal trespass for anyone who doesn't meet that definition to go into a changing room space, a locker room, shower, um, dressing room. Um, and that can be punishable of up to six months in jail. Um, however, you know, lawmakers changed the bill. There, there were some pretty drastic back and forth changes where they removed restrooms from it entirely. And then they put them back in um, where in restroom spaces specifically, uh, lawmakers said they were focusing more on inappropriate behavior there. So it's not necessarily a crime for people who... Um, don't meet that legal definition of sex to uh, use a restroom um, of of the you know th where they don't meet that definition. Um, but lawmakers have implement have said that if people are loitering in that space, then it would be a crime. And their definition of loitering is if the actor intentionally or knowingly remains unlawfully in a space. And so how that would be interpreted by law enforcement and by the courts is really um, a question that we'll, we'll see how it plays out. I believe there's also something in the bill about, um, I guess, reporting a uh, transgender person in the wrong, quote unquote, wrong uh, bathroom or changing area repeatedly or too often. Right. So if you make a false report of individuals violating these laws to police, um, it becomes a class B misdemeanor done repeatedly. Um, so people can't necessarily use these laws to target a, a specific individual if they know that that person is not violating the law. Um, 
some folks have said on social media that they think that this could be also preventing people from engaging in forms of, you know, civil disobedience, calling the laws, calling the police on people who um, they know don't, aren't breaking the law just to kind of muck up the system. Um, but this, this part of the law, um, you know, Lawmakers are hoping it'll prevent people from from abusing it. So as I understand it, uh, these rules uh, now apply uh, to publicly owned or controlled facilities. Uh, so obviously government buildings, but where, where else? Yeah, so government buildings, um, publicly owned and controlled facilities also include libraries, uh, airports. The Salt, Lake, the Salt Lake City International Airport is owned by Salt Lake City, so... Um, while this, the airport does have numerous gender neutral bathrooms that anyone can use, um, this impacts where, um, transgender people passing through there can choose to use the bathroom. Um, it also impacts some sporting arenas, right? So, uh, where, you know, you see like, for example, where Rail Salt Lake plays, that the land that that um, arena, that America First Field is on, is owned by Sandy City. Um, so there, there are pretty wide impacts, and and um, again, we'll see how how the laws might be interpreted. Uh, but it's primarily in in those buildings where um, it'll take effect. But it also impacts schools. Uh, so students who are transgender who maybe don't feel comfortable they 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 would have to in schools um they would have to use you know the restroom according to their sex assigned at birth but if they don't feel comfortable doing that then the schools are required to work with their parents to create what's called a privacy plan in the bill um where students can use another space whether that be a staff or faculty restroom or a restroom in the nurse nurse's office um and one of the main complaints about that or the main issues that um, transgender students have pointed out is that it would likely identify them as transgender to their peers and could create a lot of issues with bullying um, and mental health issues down the line for them. Um, one last thing on, on this particular part of this, um, you see in your story that the bill requires the state auditor to establish a process to receive complaints about government entities that are not complying uh, so I guess that'll need to be set up, but there is quite a bit of teeth in a government entity who doesn't comply. Right. If if um, a government entity, if the state auditor finds that they've violated the law, um, they'd have 30 days to resolve the violation. And if they don't do so, then the auditor will send that report on to both the legislature and the attorney general's office. And the attorney general's office will then impose a fine of up to $10,000 per day. Um, and, you know, there have been questions about that where the government is fining the government, um, what that will cause, uh, you know, a lot of these government entities are, if they get into legal trouble are also re represented by the attorney general's office. And so, um, there's conflict questions that some lawmakers have raised there. Um, but, uh, we'll be keeping an eye on how the state auditor uh, is digging into this law. Um, and it'll be um, interesting to see where we are next year. Yeah. 
Uh, as you point out, have pointed out in several stories, Emily, um, the, there were hearings, right, early on, but uh, the, the public didn't really have a, a great opportunity to comment directly to legislators uh, as changes went by and, and new versions came up with this bill. Right. After these went through both the House and Senate committees where people had the opportunity to give public comment, there were two really drastic changes to the bills, kind of back and forth changes. Um, and I referenced them a little bit earlier, just that initially, you know, the restroom component was taken out and then it was put back in um, as far as how, you know, lawmakers are legally defining those spaces and, um and the implications of those changes of the legal definitions of sex. Uh, so people really didn't have a chance to weigh in on that in front of lawmakers. Um, and a lot of people I know felt, um, said that they felt a sort of whiplash of sorts where, uh, you know, you had LGBTQ advocacy groups like um, Equality Utah uh, trying to get lawmakers to make some changes to the bill, to make it a little less impactful. Um, and they had counted the first change where restrooms were taken out as a victory for them. Um, and then it was put back in. And, uh, you know, as as it was put back in, while initially the, the group was saying that they weren't going to release a public statement, they felt they seemed pretty shaken up. Hmm. Uh, that's where I want to go last, uh, Emily. Um, the LGBTQ community... What are what are folks there saying now that the bill is is law? A lot of people are scared about their future in the state. Um, you know, although it in space in public spaces where there may not be gender neutral restrooms, um, transgender people really don't know what to do um, because you know they may have been assigned one sex at birth, but they've um, transitioned and you know and in all ways appear to be the other sex and so they worry like if they go into the restroom if they're assigned sex at birth they'll have the police on them or if they go into the other restroom they'll also have the police called on them um so they really don't know what's safe for them they also worry that you know just that this will create a perception in the state that um, transgender people are predators when statistically the, the statistics don't back that up. And um, there really aren't any legal cases in the state to back that up. But if with that perception being changed, the community really worries that it will increase violence against them. And as it is, um, the transgender community is far more uh, vulnerable to violence than other Utahns. Um, transgender people are four, four times more likely than any um, other person to experience viol violence at some point in their lives or to be targeted with violence. Um, so people, people are scared about what the impacts of this bill will be. And they really feel, um, in a sense, betrayed by the governor because, you know, um, when he was lieutenant governor uh, and um, there was shooting at uh, Pulse nightclub in Orlando, which is a gay club, he made national headlines for um, giving a speech where he, you know, sympathized with the community and called himself an ally. Um, and since then has described him, continued to describe himself as an ally. But, you know, for 
the past two years, he signed bills that have harmful impacts on the transgender community. Um, and so they feel that uh, he, he did those things for show. Little State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern, thank you so much. Thank you. And I know we need to let you go. We need to go and do some more reporting at the legislature. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for having me. Uh, Robert Gerke, what do you think about uh, about this one? I mean, I, I can't help but think, like Emily was saying at the end there, how Spencer Cox has made a bit of a reputation for himself after the Pulse nightclub, going to the Love Loud Festival and, and proclaiming his support for the community and then doesn't support them. He hasn't supported them when they banned them from sports, hasn't supported them when they banned gender-affirming care, didn't support them on the bathroom legislation and the locker room legislation that just passed. Um, you know, and, and, and it's kind of telling, too. You know, I mentioned the Love Loud Festival. That's been held at public arenas before, uh, which now that, that creates issues for, for their spaces. I mean, I think, as Emily noted, it's a very complex bill and people are still trying to figure out the practical impacts. But I think the message is clear. And I have friends who have you know transgender kids and they have a hard time with this legis this type of legislation because they feel so targeted. But already they already feel like there's a target on their back. And then when the legislature uh, comes at them like this, it's 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 damaging to them. And it's, it's you know, and there's we've been dealing with these issues at a local level for a long time. And the legislature claims to believe in local control. Uh, you know, it's been it's been dealt with, and 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 now it's become this political football again. I'd have to come back to it because it's an election year, and there's this right wing movement across the country, and this is one of the bills that they, is at the top of the agenda. And and I think it's unfortunate, and it's going to hurt kids, and it's going to hurt families, uh, and it's going to hurt the community, and, and it empowers people. I wrote a story last week about a father who felt like he was entitled to challenge a player's eligibility to play in a basketball game because he didn't perceive her as being feminine enough. You know, it just empowers people to, to do that sort of thing. And, and so, you know, we'll see how it plays out. I suspect it'll be challenged in court, although they're not saying that yet. Uh, but it, it sets a bad precedent, I think, for the state and moves just in the wrong direction. We'll head toward another break uh, when we come back. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, this story. A judge said a Salt Lake City man could go to rehab after jail. Why did no one take him there before he died? We'll be talking with reporter Peyton Harkins. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from uh, Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. More following this break. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. We turn next to Salt Lake Tribune reporter Peyton Harkins. Peyton, thanks for joining us. Of course. Uh, so this is a, a heartbreaking story that uh, illustrates some some problems in our, our system. Um, I guess, first of all, t tell, me, uh, tell me about Colin Connor. That's who you profile here. Uh, tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, so, you know, Colin is, you know, he's from Washington. He... Uh, you know, I mean, when reporting this story, I got to learn so many things about him. For instance, you know, I found this whole project when he was five, you know, when he said he wanted to be a fireman and a, and a judge, you know, but somewhere in his adolescence, he got introduced to opioids. His father thinks that around age 15, somebody gave him his first Oxycontin pill. 
And then, you know, two years later, he was apparently stealing um, codeine that his sister had been prescribed after she'd gotten a tonsillectomy. And so, you know, by 19, he was in rehab. And then, you know, along the way, he found himself in Salt Lake City. His parents kind of thought it would be a, you know, kind of a, a fresh start for him, you know, where he could learn to kind of rely on himself and, you know, and all that stuff. And as we learn in this story, um, unfortunately, their parents' desires for a Salt Lake City experience were not, were not what happened. Uh, so, uh, tell me what, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, move back to, to his last court case and what happened there, but, uh, he ended up being found dead, right? Yeah, he, um, he was released from jail and then six days later he was, he was found dead in a porta potty at a, it was like a work site in the central ninth area. And I mean, this is something that that happens you know i mean unfortunately it, it happens i've done stories before about salt lake city's unsheltered population dying on the streets but colin's story you know his father actually is the one who pitched it to us because colin was not supposed to be released from jail to the street you know he had another option a jail had ordered him to or a judge had ordered him to 30 days in jail or early release to treatment at this nonprofit in in Utah called Odyssey House where he was supposed to get, you know, treatment for his addiction. And yeah, as I as I go through in the story, that that just unfortunately is not what happened because he fell through this sort of crack in the system. It's just heartbreaking uh, because you know so many points where where he could have been saved, um, but yeah. uh, but uh, he was released five a.m. Um, if it had been two hours later, he there would have been help available apparently that's that's what i i <laughs> i have to assume you know when i was asking people questions about sort of what happened with him and the circumstances of the jail and stuff like that i did not get a lot of response which was honestly kind of frustrating in this in this whole reporting process that has lasted me months but yeah he there the jail the Salt Lake County Jail has this program called the Jail Resource and Reentry Program, something like that. And basically, it's literally to catch people like Colin. You know, I mean, ideally, Colin would have been transported, you know, either by his attorney or representatives from Odyssey House directly to Odyssey House sometimes before his sentence expired. But he didn't. And so this program exists because... You know, otherwise, when people are released from jail, they literally, I mean, they get the, uh, you know, the things that they might have had on their person whenever they were released from jail, and then they walk out the door, you know, the jail doesn't arrange with your mom to come pick you up or your friend to come pick you up. I mean, they just, they just let you out. And so this reentry program or this resource program is there to like, you know, do you need a ride? Do you need a cell phone? You know, do you know when your next court date is, you know, and so this program exists to catch people like this. But yeah, because of the time Colin was released, you know, nobody was, was working at this program at the time. It opens like 7, 7 a.m. or something like that. But yeah, the jail says they, they couldn't hold him which jails can't just hold people kind of arbitrarily, you know, once their sentence is mm -hmm. up, they, they leave. And that's what happened with him. Well, the thing I learned in your story is, you know, the, the system, the, the judges, the jail is, is willing to work with, uh, you know, work with you, but it's not their responsibility, right? Not the, not the prosecutor, not the judge, not the jail. Essentially the system lays it on the defense attorney. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what, I mean, that's what people told me and you, and you'd have to imagine that if you don't have, you know, 
I, if if your defense attorney is quite busy, this this might fall on you when you're in jail to get that same transportation too. But yeah, I mean, talking to prosecutors, you know, I I kind of assumed that they would tell me something like, you know, of course we prefer people to end up in treatment as opposed to serving their 30 day sentence and getting back on the street, you know, but that's really not what they said. They, you know, they said the state's interest is served either way. These sentences run, you know, if he serves the 30 days or if he is released early to inpatient treatment. And, you know, I tried to get a judge, you know, the judge in Connor's case or any judge really to talk to me about this and, you know, just sort of, you know, maybe not necessarily Connor's case, but like, what are their expectations when they order somebody to this treatment? I mean, do they, you know, do they really follow up afterwards? Do they, do they hope that the person makes it to jail? Do they, or makes it to treatment? Do they have a preference? And the court system, you know, told me that judges weren't, weren't able to talk to me. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of dead, dead ends in this story, you know. Um, tell me about the, the methadone part of this. Uh, Colin Connor at, at last spring, uh, got on methadone, you know, trying to, trying to kick his habit. Um, yeah. some in jail can continue on methadone for whatever reason he, he wasn't given methadone. And that could be a problem. If, if you, if you go through withdrawal as, as Colin did, you point out in your story and you, and you come out, um, you, you have you don't have the resistance you once did, and so some people go through withdrawal, you say, and and, and come out and then accidentally overdose. Yeah. So yeah. So basically, there were kind of two ways that you know Colin's family believes that the jail sort of erred in keeping Colin and and how they you know I guess how they kept Colin. I don't really know how to say that, but. You know, first was, of course, this this idea that he was not released to treatment, you know, that he was released to the streets. But then the second was, yeah, this this idea that Colin had been on methadone, you know, his last dose was the day before he got booked into jail. And then he gets into jail and for whatever reason, the jail doesn't isn't able to verify his prescription. That's that's their rule. They're like they're one of the few jails in Utah that actually um does what's called a medicated medication assisted treatment program, which is, you know, suboxone, methadone, whatever. Um, and it's seen as best practices, you know, to, to continue people on these medications and yeah, they couldn't verify Colin's prescription. So, you know, he withdrew. That's obviously a terrible, you know, a terrible thing to experience and then gets out of jail and, you know, apparently accidentally overdosed and he hadn't really had an overdose problem before according to his dad this was the first time anybody knew he had overdosed so the dad thinks that you know had he had his tolerance because he had continued on methadone had he even been on methadone you know he might not have done those drugs and he definitely he thinks wouldn't have overdosed but yeah there's there's a lot of research that that looks into this idea that the time the time right after somebody is released from jail is a really is a really um Oh, oh, I can't think of the word for it, but it's a really, you know, their, they ha their chance of dying is more likely in this case, just because of, of, of stuff like this, basically. And so the jail is aware of that has this MAP program and for whatever reason, Colin Connor did not get to participate in it. Hmm. We're going to running uh, down out of time, but I do want to have you talk a little bit about uh, the father. He goes by Ty, Ty Connor. 
Uh, he, yeah. he, he, uh, he's taken it upon himself to try to prevent this from happening to other people at the point of writing letters to judges and, and things like that. What, what is he doing? Yeah. I mean, he last, last I talked to him, I mean, he was looking through the jail rosters, you know, they're in and out dockets each day and kind of comparing those, you know, what he saw there with court records and trying to identify people that are in the similar situation as Connor, you know, people who appeared to have some kind of substance misuse issues, people who'd been in jail long enough to withdraw and people who, you know, were ordered to, to treatment. And, you know, he feared because their sentences seemed close to expire that they would, you know, just be released to the street. And he actually, you know, he sent me the names of four or five people who met this definition. You can go look in their court dockets and see the letters he's written these judges. And he's also identified one or two people who have actually died. And there was one guy who I didn't actually get get into much in the story who actually died within hours of being released to jail and he was you know he was released from jail and he was you know he was supposed to be in treatment too and it just didn't just didn't happen but i mean i will say there is there is a bit of a silver lining in this and that finally you know after months of him trying to get information on what happened to colin he got somebody to admit that something wrong had happened it was uh you know a, a clerk he was talking to for a for a judge and they'd said that you know yes the way this person was released does not comport with the order the judge you know rule laid out and we're gonna talk to somebody about it basically and that was like the the big silver lining you know where somebody finally admitted that that something was going wrong in these cases well tragic case important uh you know to try to uh, try to uh close these uh fatal uh, loopholes, right? And then cracks. Uh, Peyton Harkins, Definitely. thank you so much for telling us about this. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Uh, Robert Gerke, uh, just briefly, what what are your thoughts on this? Then we'll go to underplayed stories. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. It's a tragic story and it shows that there's uh, more to be done. I think that giving people support as they leave uh, incarceration is is the first step to trying to make sure that they don't end up back there. And, and, and then Peyton's story tragically kind of highlights the failure to do that. And it would be fantastic if the legislature spent a little more time, you know, helping people as opposed to hurting them and, and tried to address this issue and put a safety net in place for people like Colin. So a uh, good story. I highly suggest people go check it out. SLTrib.com. SLTrib.com. Yes. Well, let's uh, turn to our underplayed stories of the week. We'll start with Courtney Tanner. What's your underplayed story of the week? Well, I do have to just repeat the pain story is is just brilliant um, and and really touching. So go read that. Um, but what I will highlight for my underplayed story is a piece by Carmen Nesbitt that she um, there's two, but looking into the voucher program that was started last legislative session, she answers questions on that in one piece, but then in a second piece, looks at lawmakers asking for more money. The program hasn't started yet, but they're asking for more funding for it because they say there's a demand. And it's just a really interesting dissection of the all right, sltrib.com for that one. Uh, Peyton Harkins, what's your underplayed story of the week? I am going to give a shout out to um, our Open Lands team. They had um, Julie Jag wrote this kind of uh, a really good story. I thought about what's going on with Nordic Valley and sort of the um, different hurdles they've had to jump this year, a fire, a crucial lift not working, and then just horrible snow at one of the lowest uh, base elevation ski resorts in Utah. Then they did another story about um, oh, wolves being released in Colorado and how they might cross over into Utah and sort of what's the plan for if wolves get over here. So check out both of those stories. Uh, 
SLTrib.com. Yeah, and they, they do the, collectively they do the Open Lands newsletter, I think they call it. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Robert Gerke, what's your underplayed story of the week? Um, I had one last that posted last night. Um, Attorney General Jan Graham, who's the uh, only de- the last Democrat elected statewide and the only woman to be elected statewide, uh, died recently. Uh, she'd had ovarian cancer for a while. She was 74. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of people talking about the things she did, but mainly, you know, the uh, child abuse prevention, domestic violence prevention, gang prevention. She created the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, um, you know, so uh, you can go check out her legacy at sltrib.com. Yeah, that was a good one, sltrib.com. Still to this date, the only female attorney general, right? Um, so uh, I'm going to choose one from uh, Leah Larson. Uh, the headline is, Private Interest Asked for More Utah Taxpayer Money to Rollerfell Forests. We've done some stories on that and uh, Lobby Against Wolves. Uh, interesting, sltrib.com for that one as well. Well, we've been talking with um, reporter Courtney Tanner, State Watch reporter Emily Anderson-Stern, reporter Peyton Harkins, and news columnist Robert Gerke. Thanks to uh, all of them, and uh, thanks to you for listening. You've been listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. Hope you'll join us next time. Thanks for listening.